Bette Midler, 1989 song for her, From a Distance. The opening song, of course, to that lovely film, Beaches. Uh, I remember going to see that at the Alhambra Cinema in Keswick uh, back in 1989. Uh, it was on a Friday night and I thought it would be complete trash. And was it? I, I remember coming out thinking that was a great film. Um, I suppose that's the joy of movies, isn't it? Going in and thinking it's not going to be good and coming out thinking it's wonderful, thinking yeah. it's going to be brilliant and coming out thinking it's an absolute dog. So, uh, yeah, and being able to freely disagree with people because it's a completely subjective thing. Yes. Anyway, I'm joined by uh, Daniel Mumby, or is it Daniel Mumby's joined by me? Because it's the first <laughs> week that I've done the, uh, the, the movie hour with, yeah, uh, with Daniel. Yeah, we're throwing you into the deep end because um, Paul Young uh, finished his stint on Lionheart last week, but we thought we'd carry this on and see what happens. Yes. Yeah. Nothing's gone wrong so far no indeed <laughs> well you weren't hearing me at eight o'clock this morning <laughs> we had a few technical problems as you do anyway right. so films baftas yeah the baftas were um it's, what is it now it's the weekend before last because we're now on saturday um basically there weren't that many surprises i mean i'm just kind of looking at the we all kind of expected the king's speech to win best uh, picture and Brit an outstanding british film i'm glad that colin firth and jeffrey rush both got recognition for that role but in many ways the kind of most interesting part of the night was not so much who the awards went to but it was the speeches yeah and no most of them were kept pretty short there were only um two that sort of sprang to mind one was helena bonham carter when she won for the king's speech best supporting actress and she did kind of waffle on quite a lot kind of ran on about how uh, how her husband who well partner tim burton had kind of you know started the whole thing by casting her in alice in wonderland and um, the only other surprise was when rosamund pike was presenting the award with dominic cooper i can't remember which category but she almost did um what's known as a laurence olivier of reading out the winner before the nominees because <laughs> there is the famous story that when um laurence olivier when he was asked in 1985 to present the Best Picture Oscar, and he was a, he, this was at the point where he was just kind of, you know, dementia was setting in, unfortunately, and sad end to his career. But he basically walked up to the podium, just said Amadeus, and then walked off. And it was sort of awkward silence before the music kicked in, and the F. Murray Abraham got up to accept the award. Yes, yes, it's amazing, isn't it? The amount of preparation that goes in for these events. And I was reading an article saying how, how many people there were organising it. They start the day after the previous year awards yeah and huge organization and it all could go horribly wrong on the night it usually does and that's yes. the reason why it's interesting to stay up and watch yeah, it so but of course the oscars are on the 27th this year which is next uh next this time next week so do you think the brits are coming again well, I think King's Speech has got a pretty good shoe in. I would actually put an outside bet on Social Network winning Best Picture. I mean, um, my favourite film of last year was Inception. I do think that is going to get overlooked, except in the technical categories, and it is absurd that Christopher Nolan hasn't got a nod for Best Director. But I think, by and large, you will see a kind of reprint of the results, certainly in terms of the acting categories. Yeah. I was actually probably quite surprised by the Social Network winning so many BAFTAs, but I just think it's a, it just gives me a, the thought of being a fairly nerdy film. But Well, it, it mani the thing about the Social Network is it manages to take a subject which is incredibly nerdy and on one level completely obnoxious, because it is about a bunch of chauvinist people and men in their early 20s, and it manages to take a, you know, the idea of them basically sitting in a room for two hours arguing about copyright and make it incredibly cinematic. Okay. I mean, I think it's the best thing that Jesse Eisenberg has ever done and I've, if you've been following this program for a while you know I can't stand The Squid and the Whale which is kind of held up as this great early work that made him a star but I think it's navel-gazing nonsense right yes. so uh, I should go and watch it shouldn't I <laughs> just, you know, just so you know what kind of turf we're on yes indeed right shall we have a look what's in the top ten this that week that seems like a pretty good idea
So, do we sit in reverse order? Yeah, they do on all the good radio shows. <laughs> uh, Sanctum, I've got s number ten. Which, it's, well, full-length James Cameron presents Sanctum, although he isn't really involved beyond lending the director his newfangled 3D cameras, which you don't need. It, it's <laughs> rubbish. It's basically, you know, James Cameron's The Abyss meets Neil Marshall's The Descent, but without any of the thrills. And if you want a 3D caving movie, just wait for Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams to come out, because that'll be much more interesting. So that's a don't go. No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fine. Number nine, Never Let Me Go. Which is an interesting attempt to adapt um, a very complicated novel by uh, Katsuo Ishiguro, who's the guy who wrote The Remains of the Day, which itself was uh, adapted in the mid-90s. I mean, it, it owes quite a lot to the kind of paranoid science fiction of the mid and late 70s to things like Soylent Green, Lo Logan's Run, mainly to this um, little-known 70s B-movie called The Clonus Horror, which has uh, Peter Graves in, you know, from Mission Impossible and yeah. later played one oh, of yes. yeah. Captain Overt in the Airplane series. Um, but he's only in the first one, because, well, that's a spoiler. I think it's an interesting film that's carried by its performances. Now, Andrew Garfield is going to be the new Spider-Man. He's obviously in the social network as well, and he's really good. Um, it's interesting that a lot of people who have gone to see it and who have you know, not known what it's about and has come out in floods of tears, and it isn't a film for everyone, but if you're willing to have your heart broken, it's probably a good idea to go and see it, because it, it might not be around in the top ten I'll for take, much longer. Uh, take the box of Kleenex with you. Yes, or take someone who can, whom you can hold on to, because there are troubling scenes. Right. I guess slightly different at number eight, The Fighter. Yeah, it's a deeply unremarkable boxing film. I'm still, like I say, a bit cross that David O. Russell its director has got the nod for the Oscar ahead of, of Christopher Nolan because this is a, a very run-of-the-mill thriller which isn't, as a lot of the publicity claims, the best boxing film since Rocky. I mean, where's Raging Bull in that for a start? I mean, Christian Bale is always watchable and I quite like Mark Warburg, but otherwise there's no real reason to see it. Uh, right. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Another big award winner, number seven, Black Swan. Which you do need to see, because if nothing else, because it is one of the most mad films you will see in quite a long time, although maybe Mad Max will kind of push that out of the water when we come to talk about that in a little while. Natalie Portman won the BAFTA for Best Actress. I think it's pretty much a shoo-in she's going to win the Oscar for. I mean, it's the best thing... I've seen her do it in a long time, frankly, and I'm not a big Natalie Portman fan. Um, but, yeah, if, you, if you're a fan of, um, whether it's the Jallo sequence of films of Dario Argento, you know, Suspiria, Terror at the Opera, that sort of thing, or at a slightly more kind of upmarket end, um, the Paul and Pressburger works of the mid-40s, like the Red Shoes and Black Narcissus, there'll be something in there for you. I don't think it hangs together completely in the way that something like Mulholland Drive did, but it's really good fun. Right. And, by the way, that's going to be on in Annick 23rd of March. Oh, great. Wednesday evening at 7.30. Get your tickets now. Very good. Maybe my opportunity to go see it. Yeah, it is full on, but it's really good. Right. So just be prepared. Number six, Just Go With It. Awful. Right. Enough of <laughs> that one. Right. Number five, I guess it's... Uh, just about the right time with half term coming, isn't it? Yes, uh, it is. Um, uh, take me back to my childhood. This one, Yogi Bear. Yeah, I mean, it's. There was always going to be an adaptation of this coming sooner or later because of how marketable the Hanna Barbera brand is. But it's just a bit witless and badly written. And you know, for all the goodwill that I gave Justin Timberlake for his performance in the social network, he seems to be squandering that rather quickly by doing this wrong. Right. Tell me what's it Yogi used to say, is it smarter than the average bear? That was, yeah. Yes, I've 
That's a long time ago I used to watch Yogi Bear. considering yes. the, res the yes. results. Yes. <laughs> Number four, uh, I've seen the trailers for True Get, and it looks as if it's going to be really true, good. True what? True, true Grit. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Although one would argue that Rooster Codburn might well be described such. It, it, I saw this on Thursday. It's good. It's not great. I mean, it looks fantastic. I mean, it's shot by the Coen Brothers' long-time cinematographer Roger Deakins, who also won a BAFTA, and he, he does know how to shoot westerns in the sense that he can take a landscape and make it look completely arid and inhospitable. And it's, there are a number of arguments that it's a better film than the original. I mean, I'm not a big John Wayne fan, and this is much closer to the novel. And in the end, there are moments in it when it sort of descends into the sort of cookie-cutter Cohen's quirkiness, like the scene when the man dressed as a bear comes on screen. And I could have... And I felt that that never really married to the central revenge story, but it is pretty good. Yeah, and good reviews of the lead actress. Yeah, Hayley Steinfeld is... Um, she's very convincing, I thought. And um, I'll see anything with Matt Damon in, so... Yeah. Again, go and see it, but don't expect a masterpiece based on yeah. reviews. It must be very difficult for actresses or actors of that age to, uh, to be convincing. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, at that sort of age, it is, you are relying on a director or, in some cases, a casting director to kind of spot a little spark. I mean, if you look at the career of somebody like um, Saoirse Ronan, who's still, I think, only 16 or 17 or something, and you look at the film she's been in, you know, Atonement, The Lovely Bones, that sort of thing, and there is, there is something in her which is, yes, she's a child, but she also has this kind of wisdom beyond her years, and I think that's what you're looking for. Yeah. On to number three, and Tangled. Which is a perfectly fine Disney CG animation. I mean, I don't think it's going to age anything like as well as the hand-drawn stuff, and I don't think it needed to be in 3D, but it's nice to see a family film with a decent female lead that's doing well in cinemas. Right. I haven't yet seen a 3D film. Is it worth the effort? No. Bearing in mind I haven't seen Avatar, so you would have to qualify that, but all the 3D films that I've seen, whether filmed in 3D or retrofitted, you don't need it. It's a gimmick. Right. right. And if you don't believe me, go and watch Flesh for Frankenstein, because that's the only good use of 3D I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, another film that's coming to Annick, and let me tell you the dates for that. Tuesday the 1st of March, but I think it's sold out. Wednesday the 2nd of March at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Saturday the 12th of March at 7.30 in the evening, and it is, of course... The big BAFTA-winning film and hopefully the big Oscar-winning film, The King's Speech. Yeah, there's no way they could keep it out of Anning, you know, packing them in. Yeah, it, like I say, it had a really good night at the BAFTAs. I don't think it's a perfect film. I think that towards the end, when they do the, the montage sequence of you know, people sitting around a radio, that did get a bit saccharine for my taste, but I like the central performances. And um, I do maintain, as I've said a couple of times, that the funniest sequence in it is the scene of Colin Firth just swearing like a sailor, because it, you know, it's, it's wonderfully executed. Yeah. Yeah, there was some controversy when it came out about the, uh, the 12A rating, and the producer of uh, Made in Dagenham, which was also BAFTA nominated, said, well, how can you give my film a 15 when there's only two more F-words? <laughs> <laughs> but, so but there's, other than that, there's nothing questionable about it. The best performance in it, however, I maintain, is Guy Pearce's Edward VIII. And I, I'm sort of warming to Guy Pearce as one of those actors who just sort of turns up and steals it from underneath, does a Judy Dench, effectively. It's so lovely, keep an eye out. It's lovely, isn't it, how, and I know it's probably for every small-budget film that's a success as a hundred that never make it. But yes. It is lovely to see a small-budget film Oh, absolutely. Through. Absolutely, and I, I don't have any problem with the, the with the critical acclaim that it's getting. I mean, I, certainly I'm not coming down on the side of someone like Christopher Hitchens who writes all these articles about saying, well, it's fine, but it's massively historically inaccurate. It's like, it's not really the point. No, no, <laughs> that's a fair coincidence. Probably nobody knows what really happened. 
Yes, yes. Anyway, number one, I guess another one for half term. Yeah, it's Romeo and Juliet, and it's it's not Tangled, basically. And you know, for all the things that are sort of a bit uneasy about Tangled, I mean, obviously it isn't the best version of Romeo and Juliet. I mean, if if you've got kids that are old enough, go and rent Baz Luhrmann's version, which I think is a twelve certificate. Um, if not, I think West Side Story is either a PG or a U, and that's a much better rendering of the story. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's just not that well made and not very interesting. Right. So, some stars, some absolute. Misses and yeah, a I mean, few possibles. Out of the, the out of, yeah, out of the half term releases that are currently in the top ten, Tangled is probably the best bet, to be honest. Yeah. Although that is obviously geared towards younger children. Yeah. And we'll be having a look at some of the new releases a bit later on in the programme, won't yeah, we? Yeah, we've got about uh, four to get through. Lionheart Radio. Right, time for the cult film of the week, and we're going to introduce it because we've actually found the original American radio advert for it. <laughs> I'm a fuel injected suicide machine. Headquarters to Interceptor 1. Police van demolished. Two officers dead. Night Riders now entering your sector. Intercept and destroy. Sometime in the very near future, the cops will be interceptors, the killers will be night riders, and the only possible hope for survival would be to believe again in heroes like Mad Max. American International presents Mad Max, head on, dead on. He's the maximum force of the future, and it's enough to drive anyone mad. Mad Max, rated R on the 17, not admitted without that. And you can tell it was uh, an American advert because it was Certificate R. Yes, which, I mean, we were, we were having a bit of a discussion about this because the NC-17 certificate, which means you can't go and see it unless you're 17 and over, I don't think that was introduced until Showgirls came out in the mid-90s, and that's why the NC-17 certificate tends to be associated with, well, either art house or upmarket pornography, rather <laughs> unfairly. But I'm surprised at that rating because, you no, know, as will become clear, there is a lot of... X-rated stuff in Mad Max. So, yes. so anyway, let's let's set up the background before yeah. we get into it. Um, late seventies, very low budget Australian movie, made for something like ha less than half a million Australian dollars. I don't know what that comes out in American money, um, which is largely credited with introducing the world to Mel Gibson, which isn't the most auspicious start considering his recent comments. But no, there was a time when he was a very well considered, if very mad actor widely considered to be the first ever punk western because it took the conventions of the cowboy films of john ford and sergio leone basically put them on motorbikes with other jackets and put a supercharger up the end directed by george miller um who has had a really strange career because he started out like i say in this sort of exploitation western world working with a producer called byron kennedy he made the three mad max films then he kind of suddenly turned up as the producer of babe which was oscar nominated of course for Babe's picture directed babe pig in the city and most recently directed Happy Feet. So he's had this strange progression from you know, starting out at the really kind of sleazy, well not sleazy, but kind of grimy, nasty, low budget exploitation thrills, and now he's doing sort of mainstream slightly innocuous CG animation. So yes. you, you wouldn't have predicted that considering how he started. No, I mean, Babe, Babe wasn't exactly a good film. Well, it's, it's okay. I mean, I don't think it deserved a Best Picture nod, but it's perfectly fine. The sequel's not there. You're kind of 
grimacing in the comments. <laughs> Indeed, never mind, never mind. <laughs> okay, we there aren't we... too many films I see, but I have to say that was one I really did not like. But... Okay, well, there are yes. things wrong with Bay, but I, yes. uh, it's, it's, it's okay for what it is. So, the sun, to give you a bit of uh, an introduction to the plot, Mel Gibson plays Max Rokotansky, who isn't mad at the start. Um, he's an outstanding pursuit driver for the main force patrol in post-apocalyptic Australia, and I should say we will keep the bad accents to a minimum, and Richard, you can cut me off if I start sounding like a bad impression of Steve Irwin. Um, the film begins with a ten-minute chase sequence of Max and his colleagues hunting down and destroying a lunatic called the Night Rider, who has stolen this car and um, killed a couple of police officers in the process. After hearing about the Night Rider's death, this gangster called the Toe Cutter, who's played by an actor called Hugh Keys Byrne, begins to wreak havoc on Max, badly burning and killing his colleague, who's called Goose. And Max eventually becomes disillusioned with the police force, goes on leave with his wife, but bad stuff happens that you no, know, and everything ends up catching up with him. So where do we start? For a film, like I said, that was made for around 400,000 Australian dollars, it looks absolutely fantastic. I mean, you wouldn't think from looking at it that it was made for so little money, would you? No, no. I mean, it w it's famously um, the first Australian film to be shot using anamorphic lenses. you know what an anamorphic is? No, but... Uh, okay, it's, it's quite hard to show on radio, but if you imagine um, a normal uh, widescreen shot, yeah. normally it's, you know, the film is stretched um, horizontally, but you end up with lots, you know, kind of two big black yes, bits at yeah. the top of the frame, and yeah. it's quite a waste. Well, if you shot it in anamorphic, which is what John Carpenter and George Miller used to do, is you, you have a lens which is shaped like a, I suppose like an, like a, an oval with the, it stretches the film vertically so that you get this fill, huge, you know, kind of stretched shot filling the frame, and then you um, switch it back again with a vertical lens so that it looks like a normal widescreen film, but you fill a lot more of the frame, and it's used oh, yeah. to kind of put more detail on the frame with, in terms of landscapes, and it, it's used in a lot of modern westerns still. Um, so just in, and the, the comparison with Carpenter is quite interesting because just in the way that his film Dark Star kind of created a bridge between the old school sci-fi of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 and uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris and the Star Wars stuff that followed. So Mad Max is kind of a bridge between the old-fashioned westerns, like I say, of Sergio Leone, of um, John Ford's you know, cowboy films, and all the kind of action movies that came after it. I mean, most famously stuff like Waterworld, which was described as Mad Max on water skis, and no, although didn't have anything like the substance of it, as will become clear. So the the Western elements of it are quite upfront in the sense that instead of cowboys and Indians, you have the main force patrol and the bikers, and instead of covered wagons, you have supercharged V8 muscle cars and biker gangs, and that in turn sort of ties in with um, the films that George Miller would have grown up with, which is things like The Wild One and all those Rebel Without, those sort of films which James Dean was involved in, in which it's young people on bikes riding into towns and yeah. causing mayhem, and so all that stuff is in there, and then you add in this kind of very interesting, very powerful social undercurrent about uh, the scarcity of resources and the animalistic nature of man, and uh, we'll come on to that in more detail in a second. But at heart, Mad Max is what's known as an exploitation film. That is not not necessarily a film which exploits its cast for the sake of you no know, titillation or anything else, but a film which takes a subject matter and uses it to kind of you know to play out a series of you no know, thrilling or exciting or entertaining events and you know, to a certain extent all action movies are exploitation but no they just wouldn't like to use that term. in the case of man max you have a film which is taking um a subject matter 
which is very much in the public eye. So you have the youth rebellion of the 60s and 70s, you have the oil crisis from OPEC onwards, and I dare say you'd remember all of this. I do, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point <laughs> yeah. on it. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> I shall go and repaint the grey hairs later. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like I say, not to put too fine a point on it, but as in you can correct yes. me if I'm getting any of yeah. this wrong. And like all exploitation films, there are moments in Mad Men X when it's a bit sort of rough around the edges and you do think this might turn gratuitous. I mean, the biggest example of that is when Max and Goose go to a club and Goose is seen dancing with someone who, shall we say, isn't wearing much in the way of a dress. But thankfully they kind of get over that bit rather quickly. But out of this sort of, you know, very grimy, very low-budget, slightly sleazy origins, you actually have a very powerful film which takes not only the Western elements and the rubble without a cause elements, but also elements from films, from horror films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Hills of Eyes, you know, kind of stripped out horror taking place in the middle of nowhere and no escape, and it just kind of says, yeah, let's crank everything up to 11 and see what we can come up with. Taken purely as an action film, it's great fun. I mean, there are... Miller is somebody who is an absolutely brilliant acting director and that he knows where to put the camera so that the car so when the car tips over or someone is kind of flying off on a wire shot it doesn't look staged and yeah. that's no it's a, the mark of a great director who can take the most complicated of sequences which involves something like two dozen stunt doubles and make it look like it's the real thing presumably on a low budget movie like that it's one of those they've got to get right first time and well, yeah deconstruct it into lots of little bits and glue it together into something yeah, I mean, spectacular it, it is a It is a case of you have a, you get a series of long roads in the outback and then you put a series of mattresses on the side, cover them up with sand and hope that they land in the right place because there isn't that much in the way of insurance when you're making something that low budget. Yeah. But all the stunts are genuine and like I say the wire work is really, really good. But, in term, but it's also well directed from an action film. There's the, in the end of the opening chase, and I'm not giving that much way because it's in the first 10 minutes. Um, when the Knight Rider's car uh, is totaled, he kind of spins around and hits some oil drums, and just before the car goes up in flames, it has a very rapid cut to the Knight, Ride, to the Knight Rider's eyes, and you kind of see that petrified, like, okay, he's dead meat. <laughs> so you get that message. Or was that the point he realised he couldn't get out of the car? Conveniently. <laughs> <laughs> yes, last point of no return. Oh, it was back there, about 200 <laughs> yards away once I totaled the car. There are also kind of... It's interesting on a musical level because there was a story about um, the guy who directed uh, Bullet, whose name escapes me. He um, hired a very expensive uh, composer to write the music. And the composer, because you know the climactic car chase in Bullet. I mean, yes, pretty much yes. everyone was there. The, uh, the story goes that the composer of Bullet basically listened to the sound of, um, m listened to the footage of McQueen's V8 Mustang and said, that'll do because you can't if you put anything else over that they won't hear it yes yeah. and it's very much the case in Mad Max although there are little kind of incidental bits of score like when Max sees Goose having been basically burned to death by the yeah. bikers most of the soundtrack comes from the engines themselves so you have the kind of the kind of snarling of motorbikes the rumbling of these big V8s and the whining of the superchargers on top I mean if you're a Top Gear fan you it's, you're it. basically in heaven because it's like a whole orchestra of engine noises and if you know it yeah. kind of fires up something in the petrol head and it's but for all its sort of exploitation trappings for all the kind of time you'll spend around thinking gosh that engine sounds good or yes let's go and you know kill these people let's go and hunt those bikers down there is a real vein of intelligence running through this so that we which neither hampers all the kind of action movie money shots, but it also means that we don't get lost in the sadism and no call up and saying, yes, kill those guys, go on, Max, do that. It's a very much a film which says, yeah. actually, that's not a very good idea. The film was made partially as a response to the OPEC crisis of uh, 1973-4, to 4, and like I say, you can correct me on this, 
where basically you had a group of oil producers who suddenly decided to sharply reduce oil production, the price quadrupled or something like that, and yeah. the basically prices in Australia in particular remained high throughout the 1970s. And so you have the central thesis of the film, which is that as the resources humanity relies upon become more scarce, particularly in the case of oil, you will get both the lawmakers and the lawbreakers retreating to a more savage and animalistic side of it. And I mean, it might, because it might seem odd to, to call Mad Max an environmental film when our hero is driving around in a V8 muscle car in the middle of a fuel shortage. Yeah. But when you consider that he's going up against psychopathic bikers, you're not going to last very long in a Toyota Prius. Yes. <laughs> Even. It's interesting how it resonates with uh, the recent increase in prices, doesn't it? Because I remember yeah. in the, back in the 70s, and your know, horror life was going to end as we knew it as petrol went up. And I can remember buying, or my dad buying it at 33p a gallon. <sighs> and it went up to over a pound and, you know, would, would, would life as we know it ended and people did literally stop driving and we used to have uh, obviously um, uh, power cuts during the day because lots of this coincided with the miners' strikes as and well. Three day week and three day week and uh, television closed down at half past ten to mm -hmm. save electricity and all all of that stuff and uh, and it felt a bit like that I guess what three four years ago when we had the big explosion in prices and now they're even higher this time and it's sort of passed everybody by and it's, uh, it's interesting we're getting more and more complacent about it well uh, yeah I mean certainly you could argue that the, the themes that Mad Max raises are resonating today I mean the film doesn't exactly argue that if prices go up beyond a yeah. certain point we will start all putting on spikes and growing Mohicans <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's just true. the that's yeah. just the device that it uses yes. but no, yeah. then again you know, more people are buying motorbikes so I mean, yes. who knows um, but it does make you wonder what will happen when the petrol does run out yeah, and no, if we ever get round to doing the sequel, The Road Warrior, we'll, that, we'll talk yes. about that in more detail because yeah. that's, that's covered in a lot yeah. more depth than the second yeah. film, and shall we say fascism is involved. Yeah. Um, so, like I say, the lack of oil and other key resources, which it's not clear what's caused them, because it's, like I say, just after the apocalypse or maybe on top of it, depending on you know, which version of a country you're reduces everyone to this kind of animalistic, savage nature of we must get we must get the resources. There's a line in the prologue of Mad Max 2 where it says, you know, the gangs took over the highways willing to wage war for a tank of juice. And it's exactly <laughs> that sort of mentality. I promised I wouldn't do us the accents at the end of it. All the kind of biker's dialogue is largely reduced to kind of screams and howls and whoops, with the exception of the toe cutter, who does sound a bit like Robert Shaw in The Sting. You know, it's sort of, I'm being very threatening just by whispering, and therefore it means I'm going to kill you. Yes. <laughs> but also, you look at the main force patrol, and they're no easier to understand, and it's nothing to do with the Australian accents, which, incidentally, if you watch the wrong version of Mad Max, has been badly overdubbed into American. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but if you, there is a, a really great scene which kind of conveys this where Goose and his mechanic who's got a massive stutter are standing around with Max showing him the last of the V8 interceptors which is this massive kind of pursuit special which has been created which is so big they've had to build a, a hole in the bonnet for the engine to fit in and a massive supercharger and they're basically standing around and howling like a pack of hyenas because of the thought of yeah we're going to hunt these guys down we're going to kill them we're going to stop them and it's the whole thing of what extent people will go to to do what they think is right, even to the point at which they'll be destroyed in the process. And in the middle of this, you have the character of Max, who basically sees both parties as being as bad as each other, summed up by the fact that everyone in the film wears black leather. Although, because of the budget, actually most of the people are wearing vinyl, and only <laughs> Mel Gibson is, has got the real thing, because no, he's, the, he's the selling point of the film. Um, there's a really good line in it when, he's, uh, when Mel Gibson's talking to his boss, saying, any longer out on that road and I'm one of them, a terminal psychotic, except I've got this bronze badge that says I'm one of the good guys. And it's the whole thing about 
about, like I say, the lengths to which ordinary people will go in the name of what they think is right. But again, it's about the self being destroyed in the process. So outside of all these kind of other genre elements, like I say, it's, it's, it's a Western to some extent, it's an action film, it's an exploitation film, but it is also a horror film, and there are some really scary scenes in it. Yeah, and I hadn't realised until I was reading before today that the British version had a large, well, not a large chunk, but a chunk cut out by the censors. Yeah, there were a couple of, there was a, a large, I can't exactly remember what was in the, because I've only seen the uncut version, which is an 18 certificate. Um, I think it's where the axe goes through the windscreen, or... Oh, yes, I think I know the sequence you mean. Yes. Um, but there's, there's fairly brutal stuff throughout it, so no, that was the day when the BBFC were kind of making cuts willy-nilly on sort of, it was around the time of the video nasties panic, so yeah. you can't blame them for cutting a couple of minutes out. I mean, not, aside from the fact that there are kind of openly shocking scenes like the sights of, you know, charred and severed hands and, you know, people kind of dying, although actually the big important death is actually shown off screen with you know, the, the shoe bouncing along the road, which is a very powerful image. You have scenes like, um, Max's wife Fifi being pursued by the woods by this kind of strange hulk of a man who it's like a scene in deliverance to some extent but also the way that it's shot is kind of like a horror film there's a moment when the bikers attack I think it's the scene you were talking about actually where the bikers attack a couple's car and tear it to pieces and there are kind of shades of psycho in the way that they kind of the rapid cutting between you know bits of the axe striking the car and they shoot the petrol flowing out of it like it's blood oozing from a wound and it's a really sort of interesting and macabre way of shooting it which in a way hints back to George Miller's past because before he started directing he was a medical doctor <laughs> who treated a lot of burns victims so you kind of knew all the anatomy stuff and thought yeah let's put it in a film charming yes and then, of course, you have the revenge element. So, I mean, you must have seen Get Carter. Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. And th in the same way as that, it's, it's, a, it's a revenge from which basically argues that in doing the act of revenge, the main character is going to be destroyed, whether physically or psychologically. And there is very much the same in Mad Max when towards the end after his family have been, well, shall we say, removed from the equation because we don't want to spoil it too much. He basically goes out and hunts down all the Toe Cutters gang to the point at which he handcuffs the last surviving member to a car and basically says, you've got five minutes before this blows up, you can either sit there and wait or you can hack your own leg off. Yeah. Which, you know, if it was being made today, it would be you no know, sore territory. So, so to sum it up, I think that... Um, Mel Gibson is absolutely great, regardless of all that's been written about him, no, with varying degrees of truth and regardless of your opinions on his directorial efforts like Passion of the Christ and Apocalypse. There was a point in his career when he was really kind of a brilliantly intense, burning screen presence, and the film genuinely wouldn't work if he wasn't every bit as good as he is, but he really carries it, he makes the character believable, so that when the revenge elements come in, use it sort of works. I mean, if you had somebody like Charles Bronson doing it, like in Death Wish, you'd think, well... This is glorifying the violence and implying it's okay, and therefore I don't really feel so fondly about all the yeah. stuff that's happened before. I mean, is it almost one of those films you need an unknown actor to make it work? Or he was effectively unknown then, wasn't he? I think so. I mean, it's certainly as a career-making role, he couldn't have hoped for much better, to be honest. But I think it is that sort of thing of you, you go in not knowing what to expect because you don't know who the guy is or what he's capable of. And the film, he isn't seen fully on screen until the first two minutes. So you see, like, you know, the gloves and the sunglasses and the hair and so forth, but it's only when the car crashes happen that you actually, as 
just what a charismatic presence he is. There are also a couple of interesting um, performances from a guy called Steve Bisley who plays Goose, basically plays him as this kind of louche kind of layabout who wants to just kick back and isn't taking anything too seriously. And Hugh Keysburn as the toe cutter, who is the only person who can have a ponytail on his forehead and still be frightening as hell. <laughs> so just to sum up, it isn't quite a perfect film. When the score can get a word in edgeways, it is a little bit close to stuff like Thunderbirds in the sense that it's no melodramatic score and it does tip over into pantomime. But there are, those are mere trifles when you look at, you know, great acting, very effective, if rather simplistic writing, excellent camera and stunt work, a real sense of suspense, and most of all, it's just a violently original film that you really have to see. Yeah, quite a bit of gratuitous violence. You know? well, I, remember, I remember at the time people think it probably too much. Well, you'll always get those kind of responses whenever a new film comes out, which is which pushes the envelope. I, looking at it now, I don't think it's... There's not much in there that's gratuitous. And like I say, in the in the scenes when it could be really sort of outlandish, like when the bikers hunt down his wife and child as they're running along the road, Miller chooses to show that stuff off-screen so that you never, you're never made to sort of revel in the violence. And, you know, when it is full-on, it is largely repulsive in the way that it's intended. So I don't think those accusations are entirely well-placed. Yes, because you, you can get to menacing without necessarily needing to see the... Yeah, I mean, the it, blood and gore. it is the argument of do you or don't you show. There was that wonderful uh, quote from Clive Barker, who's the guy who directed Hellraiser, saying, uh, I hate that school of horror films where in the first half hour you see a leg, in the second half hour you see a foot, and then you see the final thing for three seconds before it gets blown up by an atom bomb. And, you know, there are, there are directors who've done, you know, the full-on stuff, like John Carpenter's The Thing or Clive Barker's Hellraiser, in which it is really frightening, even if you see all of it. But in the case of George Miller, I think he gets the balance right between, like I say, being restrained when he has to be, but showing the shocking stuff when it's, when it's appropriate and legitimate. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you get your breath for a moment. Yeah, I think I need a glass of a water. A little break. <laughs> and Bruno Mars. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Number four in the charts at the moment, uh, Bruno Mars and Grenade, a former Lionheart Radio record of the week. Thanks to Anne for emailing in. Good morning to you. Of course, with me in the studio this morning is uh, Daniel Mumby. Well, we've done the cult film. We've we done the top ten. Mm -hmm. Shall we have a look at what the new releases I are? I think we better because we've only got 15 minutes left. Right. We'll start with Paul. Yeah, because this, uh, this was technically released on Monday, but... The, this is its opening weekend, so to speak. So, new film starring uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, both of whom I, I like. Have you seen uh, Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz? Hot Fuzz, yes, I saw that. Do you yes. like it? Uh, yeah, it was okay. Okay. Um, this isn't um, directed by their usual uh, sparring partner, Edgar Wright, who also directed them on Space when they were doing television. This is directed by Greg Matola, who's most famous for doing Superbad, which kind of gives you a hint as the sort of conflicted territory that we're in. The story is they are two middle-aged geeks. I know, what a stretch. Uh, they're taking a road trip across America to go towards Comic-Con, which is this big festival celebrating all things comic book and so forth, uh, when they come across an alien called Paul, played by Seth Rogen in uh, motion capture in the same way as Andy Serkis with Gollum or King Kong, that sort of thing. And um, he's an alien who's been living uh, kind of under the radar on Earth for, well, an indeterminate amount of time, and hilarity ensues. So, so completely credible script. Well, yeah, I mean, it's written by Peg and Frost themselves, so they're, they're all... This is this kind of hints at the central issue I have with the film. When Peg and Frost were kind of working with Edgar Wright, like I say, on Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, there was, even if you weren't the biggest fan of their work, and now I have you no know, issues with Shaun of the Dead just in terms of its, you know, it's it's slightly ropely made, but there are 
there is a sense of edge to both the comedy and the various sort of horror elements. I mean, because they were made for so little money and didn't have big sort of Hollywood producers standing over them with a stick saying, you know, got to have so much money made by opening weekend, so cut it down and put some slacker jokes in. It means that they could basically do what they like and experiment. I mean, to some extent, that means that their films don't always work outside of England, but that's in many ways a small price to pay when what you're getting is this really sort of quirky, slightly geeky, but ultimately very enjoyable film. And after the success of those, after Edgar Wright kind of went off on his own and made Scott Pilgrim, have you seen that? No. No, no. which is a really great kind of coming-of-age film, although it's no very selective audience. Simon Pegg has very kind of sort of struggled to fit in with the US. So, I mean, he's done things, good things like Burke and Hare, the recent John Landis film, which is actually very underrated. But he's sort of been reduced to taking the sort of demographically designed parts to pull Brits in, in, in big blockbusters like Star Trek. And because the film is much more expensive than the stuff he did with, with Edgar Wright, even though they've written the script, it does look very much like a film which has had all the sort of geeky, nerdy edges taken off it, saying, well, we have to sell this to a mainstream audience. And as a result, you have a film which isn't a Simon Pegg and Nick Frost comedy, but a mainstream comedy with Seth Rogen in that just happens to star Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Actually, surprised myself quite liking Superbad. I didn't expect to. I think because you would have grown up with all sorts of stuff like um, Animal House and Paul oh, yeah, the first time round. Yes. So yeah, you, which is which um, it will always be the uh, the classic in that genre for me. Yeah, I mean Animal House is is good for what it is. I mean it's not yeah. John Landis's finest work, but you no, know, as an adolescent coming of age film, it, it does its job. And my problem with Superbad was it was basically trying to pretend that all the stuff in between hadn't happened and that we were just back in the in the Porky's territory. Yeah. But no, that that aside. I mean, like I said, there is, I think my problem with it is that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to go in expecting a film which basically parodies every alien film out, out there, you know, Close Encounters, Alien, John Carpenter, Starman, which is basically E.T. for clever people, although it's arguably a much better film than Spielberg's. And yet you'll, they'll be disappointed because it is, like I say, a mainstream romp with not much edge on it. And there, there was a story about one scene that they had to take out of uh, this fundamentalist Christian girl having a conversation with Paul in which her faith is basically destroyed in the space of two uh, minutes. Yeah, you could see the American audience not not coping with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly Life of Brian territory, but, you know, you know yes. if Malcolm Muggeridge was still around, I dare say he'd have a couple of things to say about that. Yes. So, yeah, I think I'm not recommending it. I mean, like I say, I think Simon Pegg and Nick Frost are talented and they're not a spent creative force by any means, but they need to get back to working with Edgar Wright and do the third part of what's known as their Blood and Ice Cream trilogy and no, because that will be a much more kind of creative film. Yeah. So it's probably a film for an age group, this one, isn't it? Yeah. Like I said, if you go and see it, don't go in with high expectations. And I'm sure there'll be things in it that, you no know, teenagers who've grown up with, you know, the, the Judd Apatow films like Superbad and the work of Craig Matola, they'll probably find it funny, but it's not Shaun of the Dead and it's not Hot Fuzz. Right. So it's just don't go in expecting the world. So, okay, for that one. <laughs> Passable. Am I hearing you about a five out of ten, six out of ten? Five, I think, is pretty decent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which is probably five more than Big Mama's Like Father, Like Son's going to get from you. Yeah, we're not going to dwell too much on this because, you no, know, most of the stuff is obvious. Um, it's the latest boneheaded so-called comedy from the so-called comedian Martin Lawrence. Uh, the third outing for his character, FBI agent Malcolm Tucker, whose gimmick is that when he's in deep cover, he's dressed as a woman. This time, uh, he's around, uh, he's 
joined by his stepson, played by Trent P. Jackson. Basically, they witness a crime. They have to go undercover in a girls' school, and you know to find uh, the murder. And after the some witnesses, so so it's basically the same plot as Some Like It Hot, but without any of the intelligence or the comic timing or the very good ending line. And I mean, so is there anything you like about it? No, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, do you want to move on quickly? I mean, yeah, let's move on, yes, shall we? Yes. Yeah, it doesn't deserve any more publicity. Yes. It'll be in and out in two weeks. Yikes. Justin Bieber, never say never. Now, this is a bit of a complicated issue for me. I mean, where do you stand on Justin Bieber's music? Are you familiar with it? Yeah, and I like it. Okay. Yes. I mean, I'm, this is the thing. I'm not very familiar with the whole Bieber thing. Um, just to give a bit of background first of all, it's a 3D concert film about pop sensation Justin Bieber, basically showing how massively talented and prodigious he was from a very young age, and it culminates in a sellout concert at Madison Square Garden. Now, here's the thing. I know full well that... I'm, and probably you're not either, the target audience of this film, as seen by the fact that the premieres have been populated by, shall we say, a lot of screaming girls. As it would be, yes. Yes, as you would expect, no, it's the sort of the Twilight phenomenon thing. And I don't want to just do the lazy thing of bashing Justin Bieber because he's young or because I don't get his music. There was a, an episode of South Park recently where they, they got him on screen and then killed him off. And it's like, well, it's a bit of a cheap gag, guys. I mean, you could have run with that a bit further. Um... I don't have an innate problem with the idea of young people becoming successful if they demonstrate talent. And by all accounts, Bieber does actually have something. He's not just a manufactured guy who's come out of the publicity yeah. machine in the same way that, to some extent, Miley Cyrus did because her, her dad is Billy Ray Cyrus, so there's a kind of yeah. through line to get an easy way to get in. What I do have a problem with, however, is the sort of hysterical cult of personality which is surrounding the film. And I think that... The way that Bieber is marketed and the way that he sells his records means that any concert film is inherently it's going to be some kind of vanity project. Now, admittedly, we're not in the territory of Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, which is essentially a 93-minute music video in which he basically says, "Now I've come to save the children from the evil <laughs> Joe Pesci. And, you know, that's an excruciating project. But whatever the Bieber's talents may or may not be, and like I say, I'm, I'm completely ambivalent towards his music, the film is incredibly sanitised to the point at which it looks fake. I mean, even the, the bits in the trailer where you see home video of him learning to play the guitar or the drums, it does look for all the world like they've sort of taken the best bits and used that. So, yes, he was always like that. Yes. And I'm, like I say, if you're a fan of his music, I'm sure there'll be stuff in there that you'll enjoy. I don't think the 3D is necessary, but I just, for all the goodwill I have towards him, or lack of ill will, I just don't think what I'm seeing is honest and genuine enough to pass mustard. Yeah. So is it now that, you know, 3Ds can get it, can overcome a lot of bad film? technique well it people, can, people will just go for it because it's 3d well 3d can distract you from an otherwise dull film for a certain amount of time and i think you know, there are there is an argument that with concert films it works a little bit better because it you know it's supposed to allegedly create an immersive experience but you know if you want an immersive concert film go and watch stop making sense by talking heads because that just feels like a conversation between you and the band yeah so this is sounding a bit of sort of a marmite film probably the teenage, yeah. teenagers will love it and others might not. Yeah, I mean, like I say, it is targeted solely towards teenagers, so, no, like I say, we're not the target audience, and therefore it's, it isn't fair of us just to kind of bash it and say, oh, it's horrible, and don't go and see it, because I, th I think that, you know, the target audience and Bieber fans will lap it up because they're completists anyway. The rest of us might wonder what all the fuss is about and start to smell a rat about how he's being marketed. Okay. 
I think you're going to be a bit more positive about our final film, aren't you? Yes. Um, film of the Week is Inside Job, which is a documentary narrated by Matt Damon, who is also in True Grit in the cinemas, if you get the chance to go and see it. Billed as the first comprehensive analysis of the financial crisis of 2007 to present day, you know, depending on your definitions of when it's finished or if it has finished. And obviously this is topical with all the various cuts that are still being rolled out. Directed by Charles Ferguson, who previously made a documentary called No End in Sight, which is about um, Iraq after George Bush's announcement of, you know, major combat activity is over, which obviously turned out to be the biggest understatement of the year. Um, very strong liberal sensibilities kind of anchored by the fact that Matt Damon is, is narrating it. And Matt Damon, you know, has, is a a very public Democrat, very public liberal. No, he's, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's one of these figures parodied into American for being you know, a sort of wet liberal. Although I think in the case of Matt Damon, it's slightly unfair. It's very well researched. It's much more um, cinematic and comprehensive than a lot of documentaries on the subject. There was a documentary last year called Collapse, which was basically 90 minutes of a guy sitting in a chair in a darkened room saying how doomed we all are. I know for all the interesting ideas in it, it just wasn't a film. It was more sort of a television lecture. Um, it isn't cinematically groundbreaking, and I do understand that with all the news of cuts around, people don't want to necessarily go and see a film about it, and indeed a lot of people won't go to the cinema to see a documentary. But considering the week that it is, it's clearly the standout film, both in terms of how well it's made and its treatment of its subject matter. Yeah. You could see a British audience really taking to that type of film. The Americans, they don't, you know, they don't seem to like things about public expenditure and borrowing and realities of financial life. <laughs> I see the point you're getting at. Well, the uh, interesting thing is it has been Oscar nominated. Yeah. It's, it's up, it's yeah. won uh, the Director's Guild Award for Best Documentary and it's up for and the Oscars as well. So clearly some Americans are taking to it because yes. the rules are it has to play for seven consecutive days in America to be eligible and then the studio yeah. have to put it forward. So regardless of, any, of anyone actually seen it. Yeah, I can see all the American population in Annick having their machine guns ready for me as I leave the studio today. <laughs> <laughs> for that little caricature. <laughs> I think that from what I've gathered about the documentary, it isn't just a case of, in the way of Oliver Stone or Michael Moore finger-pointing, saying, these people are responsible, let's hate them, hate them, hate them. It's actually said, no, let's sit down and talk about this. And one of the, the plaudits that the documentary has got is that it actually lets the academics and the, the politicians speak their mind and then kind of, no, it, it lets them kind of set out their stall, so to speak, so that when you get all the sort of intrusive arguing, it doesn't just feel like the Michael Moore thing of grandstanding to make your own opinion, so that, no. Because yeah. the whole thing about the Michael Moore Nick Broomfield School of Documentary Filmmaking, where it's all sort of, I'm making the film, but I'm also in it. And if you do that well, it works, If but if you do it badly, it basically means that, well, I'm just imposing my opinions over what I found is the truth. And there's all sorts of stories about Michael Moore kind of cutting footage out of his own films because it doesn't fit with his own ideology. But I think that Inside Job is actually much better made than his work, and I do think it's as impartial a look as you're going to get without kind of, you know, giving either a soft view or just going after the bankers for the sake of it. So this is your recommendation for the weekend? This is my film of the week. Like I say, it isn't going to be for everyone. I understand most people won't go to the f cinema to see a documentary, but if you do get the chance, go and see it. Well, thanks, Daniel. It's been a fascinating hour. It has been good. We should just uh, mention as well that uh, next week's cult film, assuming you'll have me back, of oh, course. Oh, of course we'll have you back. Uh, we'll be doing John Carpenter's Dark Star next week. Taking us back to 1974. Yes, and uh, Dan O'Bannon's first and last acting role as yes. Pinback. Um, out of the stuff in the top ten, if you don't want to go and see Inside Job, and there's still quite a lot, um, go and see... Well, most people by now, I think, have seen The King's Speech, but if not... Um, Black Swan and Never Let Me Go if you're old enough or if you've got kids, go and see Tangled. Yeah. 
And if you want to go and see the King's Speech in Annick, go and get your tickets very quickly because I'm sure they will race um, off the computer. I was about to say, right, the, the proverbial hotcakes. Yes, they will. And I know the first is already a sellout, but uh, new dates, and I'm sure more will come along. Right, we're going to go to the news. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. Well, I want to play some Justin Bieber, really. Bye bye. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland. 